Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Canadians can be forgiven for making a national pastime out of expressing anger at the state of competition in this country. Telecom, grocery, transportation, entertainment, and several other industries are an utter anti-consumer disaster. As I like to put it, Canada is made up of three telecom companies in a trench coat. There may be some hope for change, however, as the country undertakes a review of its competition policy and the Competition Bureau pushes back a bit more than usual against monopoly and oligopoly. So, will the Canadian marketplace ever be competitive? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Vass Bedner, Executive Director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy Program in Digital Society, Senior Fellow with the Centre for International Governance Innovation, and writer of the popular newsletter, Regs to Riches. Okay, let's start with the state of competition in Canada and the big headline issues that Canadians will be most familiar with. Then we can get into the weeds. But first, we've got to we got to do the spicy stuff that everyone knows and thinks about and whinges about telecom, grocery, and airlines. Uh, how would you assess the state of competition in those industries? And it's okay just to make like fart noises with your mouth. Oh, no, I wouldn't make fart noises. I mean, we have some research that's currently underway through Statistics Canada, looking at Canada's kind of business dynamism or competitive dynamism. So we should get excited about that. But I think in this inflationary period, people are more price sensitive than ever before and really paying more attention to the power that they have in the marketplace. And people, I think, are feeling powerless. And talking about competition is really about talking about power. Mm. So I think it's great for us to be thinking about where are we when it comes to choice and innovation and price uh, when we're grocery shopping, when we're planning our travel, and when we're participating, you know, in telecommunications. Uh, telecommunications is just this fancy word, but uh, I think it's overly fancy given that it's, you know, our cell phone and our internet, right? Mm -hmm. And those services feel like they've become closer to essential, and we're starting to wonder why are they, why are they dominated by certain private companies, and is that are these companies able to act in the public's interest? Yeah, so the state of competition in Canada is people are paying a lot more attention to it than ever before, and that's fantastic. And is there a choice? I mean, I I, I think about in, in telecom, I mean, you have, you have some choice, but it's awfully similar brand to brand to brand. And of course, the old telecom thing as well, you know, with this, we're just, it's a big, complicated country and it can't be otherwise, despite the fact that I don't know. There are different countries that do things differently. Uh, grocery ditto. You can go to Loblaws or you can go to um, Sobeys or you can go to, I can't even think of a third off the top of my head, No Frills. Um, but, uh, oh, you know, the, No Frills owned by Loblaws. Well, exactly. Exa ex exactly. Or, you know, Shoppers Drug Mart owned by Loblaws, right? So on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, ditto airlines. I mean, if for international purposes, there, there are limits and, and for domestic ditto. So are there choices you know, functionally? when we actually, when the rubber hits the road? Well, I think the sort of pejorative or spicy word in competition is monopoly, right? And we do not necessarily have monopoly in these sectors, but we have 
concentration. We have firms that can exert a lot of power over supply chains and how they negotiate with vendors. They may sometimes do that to the benefit of the consumer. Sometimes as consumers, we're our own worst enemy too. Um, you could argue that say with uh, air travel, because we are often looking for discount travel options, we're also encouraging airlines to underinvest in kind of longer term digital infrastructure that we've seen Southwest Airlines in the US underinvested in. And why did they underinvest in it? Because there's a pressure to return uh, value for shareholders on a quarterly basis. And when you make massive capital investments for the long term, mm -hmm. uh, you compromise that. So again, I would wrap it in a broader context about around market power and consumer power. And what keeps me optimistic is, you know, Roger Shaw dominates the headlines right now, and it's feeling a bit soap operatic. And I don't mean that in the negative Valley Girl way it just came off, but it's a little hard to follow. It's dramatic. It's exciting. Um, but the fact that it's captivating for people and the fact that the competition tribunal actually said, please stop writing in, we don't want to receive any more letters. I think perfectly captures this moment because you have an extension, you know, you have the the referee of our regulator suggesting that everyday people should do less or care less, where in any other democratic situation, we would be over the freaking moon mm -hmm. to have this kind of media attention and public interest. So people in Canada care about competition. We need more competition in Canada. And we're taking steps to get there. So it's kind of a perfect storm. Yeah, it's funny. Is is uh, This is, is is anecdata, so this shouldn't be taken as, as scholarly. But, uh, you know, there are a couple of areas in which when I tweet, I get extraordinary amounts of engagement mm. as a rule. One is dunking on Doug Ford. Okay. Two is... Uh, whinging about competition in Canada. It really does rile mm. people up. Right. I mean, because it, it hits them, it hits them hard in, in yeah. the pocketbook, right? And they they people intuitively feel the sense of 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 injustice in it, right? Injustice, right, comes back to power. I think that's why there's also a lot of mistrust that mm -hmm. we have to pay attention to between firms and people. So there's some back to getting scholarly, there is some literature sort of suggesting or dampening that uh, concerns about greedflation are overhyped, um, sort of seeks to minimize it. The sentiment persists, and I think we still have to pay attention to that when grocers and other firms are um, sort of peacocking about record profits, historic mm -hmm. profits, especially in the pandemic, and then people are also seeing these price gains in an inflationary period, and even, you know, earning calls maybe U.S. corporations, but still talking about how they're able to kind of mask price increases under the guise of inflation. We need to, again, pay attention and make sure we have the tools that we need to actually be able to do investigations and find out whether or not that's the case. And right now, we don't have the tools that we need. You mentioned grocery stores. So the Competition Bureau is conducting a study into the grocery store sector. But the commissioner himself has acknowledged, and it's an open secret, that without market study powers, which hopefully our competition bureau will get soon, maybe even this year, they cannot compel the types of documentation that they need to really 
definitively understand what's happening, which is why I want to see a world inquiry into grocery prices mm-hmm. and the price of other basic goods. But hey, that's just me. That's just you. Well, I think you would get a seconder. I think you could find someone who would support that. Thank you. Uh, let, let's get into uh, where we might be improving, and then we can come around a little bit later to talk about some gaps still. But you know, last year, Canada made changes to the Competition Act. Yes. We have an open and ongoing consultation on the future of competition policy. Uh, we have a you know, competition bureau that seems to be taking its job a little bit more seriously, perhaps, than it has in the past. Uh, there is growing public sentiment that something's got to give. So, you know, there's there's something brewing there. Uh, you know, where where do you think those efforts are taking us right now? Have, have they yielded anything of, of substantive value? Will they? So last year, when the government of Canada tucked in some, uh, what I've called sort of low-hanging fruit changes to the Competition Act in the budget implementation bill, though that was foreshadowed in a February press release and interview by Minister Champagne in the Toronto Star, Um, it really agitated private sector stakeholders. I testified at uh, INDU, the Industry Parliamentary Committee, as well as the Budget Committee in in support of these changes. And it gave me a glimpse into, again, power, expectations, gatekeeping. This conversation about competition has been, you know, dominated by economists and lawyers. Uh, It's a complex and tricky piece of legislation that's inaccessible to the average person. Um, And we don't have enough brokers in the country to kind of bridge that gap, tell the stories. We don't have enough research. So am I optimistic with the changes that we made? Um, We enhanced the Bureau's investigative powers. We criminalized wage fixing and no poach agreements. It was previously totally cool to fix wages in this country. Um, Back to grocers, you know, a lot of speculation that there might have been some collusion around the Uh, ending of hero pay that magically happened all around the same time. We increased the maximum fines and administrative monetary penalties. Again, that's just playing catch up, making sure that um, the penalties are actually a deterrent. Here's my other tip. Don't break the law. (laughs) You don't have to face these fines. But previously, some of these fines were either the cost of doing business or, you know, the Bureau takes on these cases with one arm behind their back. They don't have all the tools they need, and they have a very high evidentiary threshold. They kind of get gaslit by our very own law. A couple of other things that are super relevant. Um, They clarified that incomplete price disclosure is a false or misleading representation. That's just drip pricing. And that's actually really powerful because I think just explicitly talking about behaviors in a digital economy that are a no kind of no-go is really important. I think there are other behaviors we should be looking at, which means that independent of market size and share, we can talk about tactics that are deceptive, that hurt consumers and give consumers you know, more power as a result. A um, Couple of other things they did, uh, expanded the definition of anti-competitive conduct. Um, they've added two words, consumer privacy to considerations of merger review and abuse of dominance. It's just a really important linkage between privacy and competition that we lacked before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be more private access to the tribunal. Let's see if anyone 
takes the tribunal up on that. Sorry, I made it kind of boring, but those were excited changes. I view them as a down payment on the reform moment that we're in now. I just think it's weird and uncomfortable that we're in a reform moment that one feels more like we're catching up than looking ahead. And two is occurring while the Roger Shaw case, this historic massive mm-hmm. merger is being considered. It makes me uncomfortable. I do not want the consultation to be our, I say this joke a lot, so I'm sorry that I'm repeating it and it's not even funny. Um, it's my favorite kind of it, joke. That's my favorite, this is my sense of humor. Recycled bad jokes that aren't funny, that's my favorite Yeah, kind. If I, maybe if I keep telling it, it'll work one day. No, it's our consolidation prize, right? Instead of a consolation prize. That that's what you know we're getting in Canada. This is going to happen. This merger is very you know likely to go forward. Let's see. But the shiny thing that we can point to is we are working to improve the law, which can give us better merger control, etc. It's not going to change the state of play with grocery, airline, and telecom, as you pointed to. But it can strengthen our watchdog's ability to take on cases, to move more quickly, and also to better enforce in a digital economy. So we need the, we need more change, um, and we need people who are listening to write in and give their good ideas. Yeah, despite despite the the exuberance being discouraged in some quarters, we we do like it. You, we do love to see it. Yeah, and I like the memes and the jokes that people are making. I think they're powerful. I think they're important for policy people to pay attention to. I think we've touched on this before, but not everyone has a sophisticated enough policy ear. I think sometimes we become too uh, literal as policy people, and we're kind of, you know, running term queries or social media sentiment analysis. It's like, you got to pay attention to the memes. You have to translate mm-hmm. what people are saying. Um, maybe they don't have the best reasons in the world to hate Galen Weston, but they're communicating something about competition that is worth paying attention to, even if it's flippant and uh, antagonistic and funny at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I happen to think that um, the, you know, we're deeply sort of ironic people. We've come to become a deeply ironic people because we're such a deeply alienated people. And that's, you know, that mm-hmm. irony is one expression of that alienation. Um, but when it, whenever it clumps and you see it, um, it, it tells you something about the underlying sentiment of the population. And I think that's why you get such good meme games uh, on those files. But I want to talk about the state because... yeah. Uh, you know, we we can have a whole conversation about whether or not competition is the problem or whether or not, uh, you know, the lack of state capacity in these industries is a problem. But I want to have it through the competition lens for our purposes. Um, you know, thinking of the state as a as a competitor in the marketplace, not as not as a monopoly uh, agent, although we we could consider that too. But as a competitor, um, you know, where does the state play a productive role now? And where might it play a productive role in the future? Just to, to give that a concrete sense, you know, we could imagine a state telecom carrier, for instance. We could imagine a state airline. <laughs> we used to have one. We could imagine a state gas station. We used to have one. We could imagine a state grocer. Um, you know, are there are there spaces in which that we, we wish to see the 
state playing a role there? And, and, and are there instances of that happening now where it's productive? I think there are definitely instances where it's productive in the telecom sector. And we have to remember, just like we don't write public policy in stone, these systems don't exist in stone, mm -hmm. right? They're constantly evolving and we built them. So we're seeing more public competitors uh, that compete on services. Of course, SaskTel uh, always comes up. Um, we're seeing more experiments with municipal broadband initiatives. I didn't know this, but when we do municipal, uh, I don't know, when we did tunnels and sewers and stuff, we also lay down fiber optic cable and people are starting to link that up. And then municipalities can make a modest profit as well, but introduce uh, a public competitor. Again, the municipalities can rent out access to their facilities. But let's also look ahead in the telecommunication space. I mean, I get a little bit stressed that Telesat is on the brink of uh, bankruptcy because I want to see a strong, at least Canadian company, doesn't have to be government owned in the low earth, low earth orbit satellite space. I think that's really important for uh, national security in the future. Call me, call me crazy, call me whatever you want. Um, and I was also recently trying to remind people that current uh, Justice Minister David Lametti was doing academic scholarship 10 years ago about the benefits of a publicly owned, you know, cloud, cloud computing infrastructure, where mm -hmm. we've seen this story before, right? We see the trend toward, a, you know, consolidation in that space. Do we trust Microsoft, Google, and Amazon to be responsible actors with the cloud in the future when it's mm -hmm. hosting our government business and our semi-private life stuff and, and business things? Or do we want to see a public competitor in that space? If we do, we need to be thinking about it now. Other times people will tell you the public competitor ruins things. I think people bring up in Ontario at least, and we're both in Ontario right now, um, the LCBO or the, or the beer store that we're over regulating because there's only a public competitor. So I do think it's interesting and important to think about where, where and when and why to invest in a public competitor and what the real benefit is, because it does come at considerable cost. Yeah. And, and it's also a question of what are the, what's the problem you're trying to solve for, right? I mean, is it you want lower prices or is it you want a better consumer experience? You know, British Columbia has a public competitor in the alcohol space. It has BC Liquor and it has private mm -hmm. liquor stores as well. Uh, you know, trust me, I spent time at each of them. Uh, you know, the prices weren't lower. <laughs> yeah. Prices were still high, but, you know, you you could shop around and you had some, you know, you could get liquor outside of government hours and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's, that doesn't solve for price. That solves for um convenience in a sense uh in, in ontario the lcbo is uh, you know a, a bit of a of a relic but um maybe that is a space in which we want some liberalization but not too much especially you know given what we're learning every day about alcohol uh, and its dangers so i mean i it really does depend on what the problem you're you're trying to solve for right yeah. i mean that doesn't come to mind as as the first place i have another one for you it's it's in the wild card zone, but it's not it's not in outer space. Ready? Uh, yeah. Wait, can I guess? Okay. Yes. Can you give me a hint? Um, vroom vroom. 
Is it auto manufacturing? No, it's oh. electric vehicle charging stations. So oh, we're yeah. seeing this. Yeah. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm, I'm going to dispute this. But EVs don't go vroom vroom. Well, I would just hum like in a low <laughs> tone. I don't know. I didn't know what to do. It was giving you a clue that it was car related. Okay. Um, look, again, let's let's look ahead. Markets that are forming, maybe, where what might be interesting places to think about a role for the state, again, before the market has sort of solidified or, or calcified as it feels in some, some of these other sectors, not that we should give up on them entirely, but we're seeing with electric vehicle charging stations, this concurrent kind of arms race where we have the government investing in charging stations that are open to everyone. So I would argue that's a public competitor. You know, it's all layered into one electricity grid, right? Uh, but we're also seeing private companies invest in their own networks, some of which are open and interoperable with other vehicles and some that are not. That's interesting to me. Um, what will the future be like? Are we going to keep investing in that infrastructure? We've set a goal of, you know, no more gas powered cars. I want to say 2035. I'm scared. I got that wrong. Um, Something like yeah, that, let's, yeah. let's look ahead. Well, yeah, I, sure. but, but I, I like, I, I want to pick up on the interoperability thing that you mentioned, because I also think that's extraordinarily important. So I don't, don't let me forget. I want to come back to that, but sure. the, the EV thing is, is so important because, it's, you know, the market's not going to explode in EVs until one, we have the capacity to manufacture them quickly enough. The government's working on that. The critical mineral strategy is part of that. But we're also not going to be able to to scale that up until we've got the charging capacity so that these things can mm -hmm. get from one city to another. And it's a massive capital investment to get these charging stations, not just in say downtown Vancouver, downtown Ottawa, but like, you know, along highway seven in Caladar, you know what I mean? Um, and, and so we're, we're stuck in a spot where, okay, well, do we induce the gas stations to put these things in by public subsidy, in which case we're just, you know, further subsidizing, subsidizing oligopoly. Or does the public say, no, no, we're going to do this because we have a chance to do this? My sense is they're probably going to, on balance, lean towards the subsidizing oligopoly. <laughs> that's sort of what we do. Uh, do you think that there's a there's a decent chance that the public decides to, to push back and, and do its own thing in a meaningful way on EV charging? Well, there are also maybe good reasons for that sector to tend toward oligopoly in some way that we should also talk about. But these aren't conversations we seem to have had when other markets were forming and, and storming their norms. Um, so that's why I wanted to point to it as something to pay attention to um, so that where and when we want to embed or enforce or solidify a national competitor, we're doing it before it's kind of too late. I, and I don't mean to be like a Debbie Downer about a public, a broader public, broader public competition in the telecommunication sector. I think we're getting there. I think it's just unrealistic at this point to think that the government will make the massive capital investments to duplicate the physical infrastructure that underpins telecom. At the same time, when you think about the future of telecom and profits, now I'll be a Debbie Downer, apparently. Let's just remember, you know, these companies have not necessarily been innovating over time as they've increased in profitability. They've been kind of riding a wave of technological evolution. So you had one 
phone line to many houses. You started to build that infrastructure. We layered in television, right? Cable television. Suddenly there was the internet. We could layer in dial-up. That's a new product or service that you can sell to people. Then we had cell phones. Maybe cell phones came before the internet. Maybe you had one cell phone. Now the whole family has a plan, right? So the ways in which telecom has been become more embedded in our everyday lives is not a function of the innovation of the firms themselves. They are following, you know, they provide the infrastructure mm -hmm. for us to use, you know, these devices and access these services. And maybe what I'm saying is very obvious, but where does that, where and when does that end? Like, unless we're really going to the metaverse, right? And 5G stuff, we also, you know, the ongoing presumed hyper profitability of these firms, you know, that have also invested and in, made major investments in Canadian media, right? Mm -hmm. May not, that may change. And that may change the conversation about a national competitor too. Never say never. No, and 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 you're right. I want to come back to interoperability for a moment. I think this yeah. is a concern that gets lost sometimes in the in the monopoly oligopoly conversation where we talk about price mostly, but it's not just about price. It's about interoperability. It's about you know the thing that you buy being yours and you being able to make it play with other things. EV charging station is a good example. Imagine proprietary charging stations that only charge a certain kind of car. Um, I think about uh, Cory Doctorow's uh, short story, Unauthorized Bread, which is one of my favorite sh short stories. So uh, good. Fantastic. And, and um, high, highly recommend people check it out. Uh, I interviewed him recently. He's got a book right now about uh, capitalism and competition. That that's quite good. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in, in an authorized bread, the the toaster will only toast certain mm -hmm. types of bread, uh, which again is is a sort of outlandish, semi outlandish way to get at an important point, which these proprietary technologies limit consumer choice and can make your life miserable. Think of you know pods that only work in a certain kind of coffee maker. Again, the example of auto charging. But think, for instance, about smart technologies and the idea of smart cities. Uh, what you know? What about smart city innovations that are proprietary and only work along the lines of, of one particular company? Think about Google and Endeavor, Google's endeavors in Toronto with with Sidewalk Labs. I, I mean, do you think that we are, as a country, as, as particularly the government, has wrapped its head around this potential concern about interoperability in the digital? economy or is this something that's just sort of off our radar i think we're not quite there yet in terms of thinking about internet of things etc and i do agree with you that a lot of smart city conversations are really it's kind of a competition issue right people want to be providing the digital infrastructure for smart cities or we see municipalities that have procured and are kind of, you get vendor lock-in, et cetera. It's very hard to switch away or it's expensive. So we do need to pay attention there. And other jurisdictions are thinking and having more sophisticated conversations about how do you mandate or enforce interoperability. Um, but we'll get there. You know, talking about, talking and thinking about Canada's competition moment or thinking of it as a window of opportunity um, does give me some anxiety because I don't want the moment to totally go away. Mm -hmm. I want us to find better ways to have a more 
consistent and active conversation about competition across sectors, across orders of government in a way that probably more closely mimics Biden's historic executive order on that all of government approach. We ask one piece of legislation and one ministry to do a whole lot when it comes to competition. And it's also worth flagging, you know, not every competition issue is going to be dealt with in the Competition Act. I'm cool with that. But as policy people, that's where we come in and where we can be really useful and thoughtful in terms of the other, again, whatever policy cliche you want to use, levers, tools, scaffolding, these architectural terms that we have. Let's make sure we're using them because people expect us to, and they don't care what order of government or ministry Mm -hmm. is responsible. They want the government to be doing something for them, and they want their kids to not be tricked into spending tons of money when they're playing a video game, right? And maybe that's not going to be just through the Competition Act, but it's still an issue. Let's talk about it. Yeah, especially the video game. I meant game in general. Thing. Especially yeah, the video game you. thing. No, I mean yeah. the video the video game thing is is notable. I mean, who you know, was it just was it Fortnite that just got nailed with a yeah. massive fine? Historic for, for that? FTC thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is is something I mean, this is my principle is if if you're going to find companies for bad behavior, you got to find them hard so they can't just factor it in as the cost of doing business, right? Uh, which I think in the case of the FD, uh, <clears throat> FTC fine very much was the case because it was big. It was real big. But you know the the these the video game microtransactions is a good example of that too. Incidentally, there is a big competition uh, discussion happening right now around video games as as studios merge and Microsoft tries to buy folks, right? Publishing as well. That's right. You know, these are things That's that right. are just sort of ancillary often to, to people's primary um, <clears throat> experience of the world. And yet, you know, the entertainment industry consolidation, books, video games, film studios is huge because they, they take up a, an awful lot of hours of our day. Yeah, certainly, if you're like me, it certainly does. Yeah, those are also super important to think about. And I mean, just back to video games for a second. I mean, they're also Always. a sector where um, they're also a sector where we accepted, we've tacitly accepted a lack of interoperability, right? Only certain games work with certain systems. We haven't seen an interoperability push there, but maybe we will at some point. Maybe there's a better argument to be made. Um, yes, because let me tell you, if I can't play the Skyrim series on my PlayStation, I'm going. I'm going to have. I'm going to lose it. I'm going okay. to like like I'm going to throw an an utter tantrum like a toddler. But but, but it, this is the play. Like you know these these play these exclusives are part of the way to induce people to buy the consoles, right? Um, and, and it was sort of you know they they happened. This was a normal thing that's been happening for a long time. But when you're down to kind of like two consoles and you know two or three big studios, that's an awful lot of power. Absolutely. And it has major effects for labor. You know, the intersection of labor and competition is something we're speaking and thinking more about now, which is great. Um, You see the FTC moving to ban non-competes. Non-competes don't really hold up in Canada, but they're still used. You know, I mentioned the no poach agreements, but thinking about labor mobility and competition law, I think is something else that can get lost when we're just looking at market size and not, again, the terms uh, and contracts that can can limit people in all sorts of ways. Um, 
And these cases, you know, it's it's a global context. Competition law is taking place in a global context, and the digital economy doesn't, you know, respect the boundaries we've set no. around our our nation state. So, you know, are we are we tilting towards some uh, coherence with the way other laws are changing? Is Canada going to be a fast follower here, or can we come forward with something that's somehow you know, uniquely Canadian or better reflects our values as they relate to competition to the extent that we have them at all. But I think people are just tired of the narrative that, ah, oh, well, we're a small country mm-hmm. and this is just sort of what happened over time. Um, and it's a result of of capitalism and, and how the marketplace worked. I think there's an appetite for more. I think there is too, but I mean, let me ask that question. Can Canada be a leader in this space, both in in terms of its own domestic policy, but also global trends? I mean, again, we often hear, as you sort of suggest, well, look, it's ultimately about the American market, the European market, China to some extent. Oh, it's a bit of a different case. But, you know, specifically the U.S. and the EU and slash U.K., um, you know, Canada sort of stuck following, you know, we follow California on auto regulation, right? We follow, you know, behind uh, Europe on digital regulation, and we're just sort of in the wake of these big players, or or is there a sense in which we can chart our own path and even, you know, you know be an example to other countries or, or regions? David, I'm here to tell you that Uh-oh. yes, Canada can be cool when it comes to competition. We can be a policymaker, not just a policy taker, partially because, look, we saw... These... You sound like an economist cover. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, look, we've seen really promising bills uh, get defeated in the U.S. They overfocus probably on big tech. My preference is to focus on, again, those behaviors and not necessarily single out the biggest tech companies because I think it's the behaviors that we care about and the fact that they become ubiquitous. Um Canada could be an example there. We maybe haven't had the degree and brutality of lobbying against these bills that the US has seen. We can also get creative. You know, we have, uh, you mentioned choke point capitalism and I'm such a fan of that, that book as well. Maybe because we care so much about maintaining our Canadian culture and heritage, we should be doing more in the artistic spaces. That could mean bringing a version of the Paramount Accords, which no longer exist in the US, to Canada. Uh, My most popular Rex to Riches post, for what it's worth, is one I wrote about Cineplex's market power. They are our ticket master. They are a distribution channel. Um, If we care about competition, we care about fair access to film. Is that a Competition Act issue? No, it's probably more heritage. We can do something about that. And another thing we can be sort of creative with is um, the My Merch campaign. So Cadence Weapon, Polaris Prize winner, is partially the face of this, but he's helping people talk about, you know, a form of gatekeeping. It's not the Apple App Store fee, but musicians have to pay, I think, up to 35%, these random arbitrary percentages on their merch. Mm -hmm. When they're touring, we know that touring is the main way they can earn money given streaming services and ticket price gouging and et cetera, et cetera. So 
why don't we cap those fees at a modest amount? Mm -hmm. Why don't we formalize what has become an inform again, what has informally become a ubiquitous practice in a brick and mortar economy? We could probably cap those fees and create a better marketplace for artists. There's nothing stopping Canada from doing that. And if I didn't stay optimistic, I mean, I couldn't stay in public policy. We picked the wrong profession if, if, if I couldn't stay optimistic about it. But yeah, there's lots of cool stuff we can do and that we should be doing. We need to get, we need to get Cineplex to declare war on the film equivalent of Taylor Swift. I think that's the way <laughs> that seemed to have, you know, generate some juice in the US with Ticketmaster. Cineplex, we do need Taylor Swift to help us reach our com competition objectives. Cineplex in, in the 30s was complaining about consolidation in the, in, the, in the cinema sector. So it's fascinating to see how that has evolved. But you're right, we need better storytelling about these issues. We need more research. We need more anecdotes that invite people to think about these issues. The subscription economy, right? Oof. Junk Oof. fees, dark patterns. People experience this. They hate it. But are we giving them a language and the storytelling? Do we have a strong enough kind of consumer protection lens for the digital economy? Is that just competition? It's competition, it's consumer protection, it's privacy, but there are opportunities for us. Um, but we have to work together on them too. And we can't, we can't just keep this at one ministry. That's not going to work. No, I think you're right. And I like that approach. And you've got me thinking now about the, I mean, this last third uh, of the show has got me thinking about so many things, including how the the competition in the entertainment industry thing is just, for one, it's not just about price. Mm -mm. Uh, it, it is fundamentally about what kind of content we get as well. And I'm thinking about how we have flattened entertainment so much because a handful of big players have adopted a formula and keep churning out the same, 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 same stuff to us. And we've kind of flattened the cultural element of it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how many Marvel movies do we need? My God. And, and yet, you know, that's, that's the model now. And whether you like them or not, isn't the issue is that, you know, presumably you also like other things, but we don't really get other things right now because we have just flattened so much the cultural industry. Well, we've de-risked it. It's become very data-driven, right? We make these safe bets. And in theory, these safer bets for studios should offset other investments they're making. You know, Mission Impossible should help studios invest in, you know, more artsy, smaller films. But back to fair access to films, when we do produce cultural artifacts that are unique or, you know, wild or smaller, if you can't go see it at yeah. your local indie cinema, because Cineplex literally won't let you, then that further, you know, erodes the sector. So you're absolutely right. Is it a competition problem only? No, it could be, you know, a bigger conversation, again, about the market power, about how the company is behaving um, and what it means. But let's have it. And let's also, you know, that is a uniquely Canadian situation. I know the jokes and the memes about who's in the trench code, three telecoms, the grocers. I like those. Yeah, I'm that's incidentally that too. joke. That joke appears in the introduction to this episode. Okay, that's totally fine. Um, I'm wearing a trench coat right now, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, 
That's my favorite joke. It's the three telecoms and a trench coat is my favorite joke. Okay, good. Because all it's my, so true. All these... Right, but th- what else is in the trench coat that's uniquely Canadian Mining that we companies. can take on? <laughs> sure. I mean, sh- sure. Let's uh, open the trench coat. I'm, I'm, I'm not being useful right now, but I think the <laughs> Cineplex story is an important one for Canada to take seriously because yeah. with other major digital cases, you mentioned like the Penguin Random House book merger. Other regulators are doing our homework for us because they occur in a global context or they're anchored in a different geography. So it's okay. We don't need to reinvent that wheel per se. And that uh, book merger was blocked successfully. In in no small part, thanks to Stephen King. (laughs) You know, there's there's like this heroic uh, narrative reaches Taylor Swift steps in, Stephen King... Okay, who will do it? Where's for us Gordon Pinsent when we need him? <laughs> Look, I often say that Canada doesn't have a Klubashar. Um, and sometimes that hurts us, right? The lack of political championship. We have a, we have a few people definitely who are interested in competition. We have um, uh, the Energizer Bunny that is Senator Colin Deacon, who's mm-hmm. surfacing competition stories, etc. But again, we don't have it anchored with with any one person. But the Cineplex stuff is a uniquely Canadian situation because of the control of the marketplace. And I believe it's comes down to two people that I like this anecdote. They're both named Rob. I'm not going to say their last names and no disrespect. I'm sure they're great people, but people can grab onto that. The fact that two people are making most of the cinematic distribution decisions for Canada, that doesn't seem, just doesn't seem right. It seems like we could be doing better there. You know, I think if Thor, Love and Thunder didn't produce a revolution, I'm not sure what will, but my God, I hope something will. If that wasn't the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> if that wasn't rock bottom, I don't know what's going to be. we got to be close. Um, Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2 would be mine. Because Paul Blart, Mall Cop is an example of a film that was basically, you know, data-driven and put together from a studio in terms of the narrative and and the type of audience it would appeal to. I, I try to end Sorry. these episodes on, I try to, we're at, <laughs> we're at time. I'm just trying to think of a way yeah. we could bring this around at the end. Okay. Well, let, let's close on this uh, in, in a, in a hot final hit. Any other bright spots that you're looking to right now? What makes you put, what makes you put on shades? In the competition space, I mean, I gave you a lot of some of my my most exciting stuff. I'm I'm most stoked about. Are we going to be inspired um, by the U.S. by Biden's executive order? We haven't yet, but I was farting around on the wayback machine, looking at the submissions from the 2008 Compete to Win review. As one and, does, and you know, as one does, as as uh, people do, so many hobbies and friends. And different provinces wrote in. That was really cool. The FTC wrote in. So I hope the FTC writes again. That'd be really cool. Um, And the bright spot is that we have started this process of reforming the law. And a big part of that consultation paper is just like any other ideas, which I think is really cool. So we need to make sure that when that consultation ends, it doesn't mean that the moment's over and that we can't, you know, that there's space to keep embedding good ideas that, you know, I, I think there's a role for the state to make markets more fair, especially in a digital economy. 
and more free actually, right? Right now we've let private companies, as you've already hit on, they've set the terms for marketplaces and they enforce the terms of those marketplaces. Um, and I wonder who benefits the most and sort of who gets hurt. I hope that's optimistic enough. It's, uh, you know, my shades are prescription. It's like a bit of a hassle to go and get them and put them on, but they're really cool. Mine too. And that, that brings us to time. But first, I want to do a quick reading list summary for folks because we don't do show notes. Uh, go read Rags to Riches. Go read Choke Point Capitalism by Cory Doctorow. Go read Josh O'Kane's book on on smart cities, uh, Sideways. And I feel like there was another book I mentioned that I can't remember now. There was something else. It's in the episode, folks. Okay. Go go read it. And also go read No Country for Old Men. I'm just, that's just for fun. A very particular kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to time. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you. And, and as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>